Welcome to the Evolved Athlete Podcast, where the best in the biz come to talk all things fitness, nutrition, overcoming challenges, to helping you on your journey to greatness. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome. Welcome to the Evolved Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Coach P. It's good to be back for another episode. I'm riding solo back in the chair today. We're going to dive into practical tools and science behind fat loss. You know, I get so many questions all the time about, Coach, how do I lose fat? Or, you know, can I use this supplement to lose fat? Or how is it that I can, you know, build muscle and lose fat at the same time? And, you know, I, when it comes to this question, we got to talk about a basic aspects of science when it comes to fat loss. There is a overarching theme oftentimes where people get so locked up into trying to find the most easiest steps that they can try to make it so super simple to lose fat without having to do as much work as possible. And, you know, just to be honest, this is just not how it works. <laughs> Ask any professional bodybuilder or individual who puts themselves through egregious amounts of time, sometimes upwards at the least 16 weeks, sometimes as high as 36 weeks of not even uh, over half a year of you know, really trying to hone in on how to lose body fat. But at the same time, when we're talking about our general populations who simply want to get healthy, we have to look at doing this from a different lens. We have to look at the science. We have to look at practical tools um, that we can use every single day. And most of the time, it's going to come to hard work, changing your habits, um, and making sure that you're abiding by simple principles that make it effective for you to lose fat. So what we're going to do is we're going to highlight a lot of the basic things that are familiar with most people who are in the fitness industry, um, highlight their importance, but then dive into some things that you might not be aware of when it comes to fat loss. And so just to knock it out of the park right now and get it out of the way, the first and foremost fundamental rule of fat loss is calories in versus calories out. And I know you all know this. I know every single person who has ever read a fitness article or a social media post on Instagram sees, yeah, 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 calories in versus calories out. But is it actually true? Yes. When it comes to calories in versus calories out, we cannot ignore the simple fact of laws of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. When it comes to how it is that we lose weight or gain weight or simply maintain, it all comes down to energy of heat, which we measure using calories. And so, and these calories give off levels of heat using joules. And we, we, we look further to that if you ever take a bioenergetics class. But for the basic, you know, general population, all you need to know is that calories are heat energy. It's how we measure energy. When you put food into a bomb calorimeter, it allows it to figure out how much how much energy it gives off simply by incinerating it. <laughs> and it's able to measure how much energy that that food gives off. And we know that when it comes to particular macronutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, and fat, each different macronutrient has a different calorie value uh, per gram that it's able to yield in energy. And we know from carbohydrates and protein that yields at least four calories per gram. And then what we know from fat is damn near double that at at least nine calories per gram. And if you want to count alcohol, that goes deeper into seven calories per gram approximately. And so when we were trying to determine calories versus uh, calories in versus calories out versus someone who wants to lose or gain weight, you first have to determine someone's basal metabolic rate. And someone's basal metabolic rate is the amount of calories that they expend based off of their level of metabolic processes if they were simply at rest or lying down. 
You'll hear exercise physiologists will we'll talk often about the differences between when to use resting metabolic rate versus basal metabolic rate. Um, but when it comes to the just general population and what we're trying to do when it comes to losing weight, calculating an estimation of your basal metabolic rate is fine. And we do this with various equations that we utilize in dietetics, whether it's the uh, Mifflin-St. Jory equation or the Harris-Benedict equation. But since they have been a little outdated. There are revised versions that also take not only activity levels into account, but also fat percentage, which gives you just a little bit more of an accurate representation of what your basal metabolic rate might be and what your total daily energy expenditure could be as well. Now, this is always why this is an estimation. And so it's always a fundamental principle for most strength and conditioning coaches, weight loss coaches, online personal trainers to, to make sure that they allow their clientele and athletes who they work with to take at least one to two weeks of just figuring out where your natural level of caloric intake is right now. Because it's very hard to determine based off an estimation. And when we look at classic studies behind calories in versus calories out, it's 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 not as clear cut and dry as simply needing to lose 3,500 calories to equate to one pound of fat, um, because that is the the magic number that has come out. Um, that when we tell people if if we want to aim for one pound of weight loss per week, we usually aim for 3,500 calories because that is about what one pound of fat might yield. But what classic studies actually reveal is that this is actually different from person to person. And so, you know, with this classic study that they did, they put everyone into this, this calorimeter room um, where you literally live in this apartment-sized laboratory for an extended period of time and perform various activities, whether it's living or exercise um, or just simply simple daily life activities. And it's able to measure about how long it would take for one individual to lose fat in, in, in the gauge of one pound. And so, and when they did this classic study, yes, the majority of people fell within this bell curve of the majority in the middle of, it's about 3,500 calories um, in overall expenditure. But what you also see is that there are also people on both sides of the spectrum. You'll find some people that need to expend upwards of 6,500 calories to lose one pound of body fat. And these are your individuals in our population who are resistant to weight loss. Um, and it becomes very, very difficult for them to be able to maintain lower body weights. Whereas on the opposite side of the spectrum, we always ha we also have the quote unquote hard gainers uh, in this perspective to where it's individuals that only need to burn upwards of lower as 1500 calories in order to burn one pound of fat. And so we, we really need to take into account individual differences. And my overall point here is that when it comes to the calories in versus calories out, yes, this is a fundamental principle that we cannot ignore when it comes to weight loss, weight gain, or simple weight maintenance. But what we need to take into account is the fact that everybody is different and not any individual is going to have to have the same exact approach when it comes to weight loss or improving health. Uh, and so it's, it becomes, and this is something I teach in my class all the time when working with individuals with special populations or simply working with any adult or, or child or an individual who's looking to improve their lives. Everyone has specific individual differences that require you to take an individualized approach. Um, so wanted to make sure that we got that out of the way as far as our first aspect of look into fat loss. And when it comes to calories in versus calories out, yes, this is 100% true. But just bear in mind that calories in versus calories out for one person is not going to look the same for another person. And that also is going to depend on where they currently are in their training status, 
uh, and what their experience has been with any type of dietary approach they might have taken in the past. Um, and this can also influence them because if we've had, and this is very, very common in the American society, where individuals will jump on certain types of diets that are overly restrictive in particular ways, whether it's something like the ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting or no or low, no to low carbohydrate or things that have specific names such as the South Beach diet, Atkins diet, and any of these paleo diets, you name it. There are so many different types of dietary trends out there that are overly restrictive that when you overconsume, uh, when you, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not overconsume, that when you dedicate yourself to these strategies and then you lose weight, but then all of a sudden go back to your old habits. And, you know, we, we talk about this a lot in, in psychology of exercise when it comes to, well, why does this happen? And it, it comes down to the fact that people simply don't change forever. They, they change their habits simply because of this overly restrictive diet that they went under for six months, lost the weight, but then because they didn't marry those new sets of habits or the dietary trend that they decided to embark upon was unsustainable, which is the most common thing that we see, then they go right back to the way they were and they end up gaining all of their weight back, if not more. And this becomes, uh, this becomes a problem as it continues to happen over and over and over again with so many people, because not only do we see that this leads to increasing insulin resistance in these individuals, which is also not good because that also puts them at higher risk of metabolic health issues, but that also increases their fat set point. And the fat set point theory uh, states you have a body, you have a body weight set point. Uh, and the theory goes that based off of either your genetics, level of muscle mass, so on and so forth, that you have a particular body weight that your body likes to hover around. And there's a specific point of fat as well. But as you continue to yo-yo diet, what we usually see in a lot of these individuals is that body fat set point gets set higher and higher and higher. And it makes it that much more difficult for anyone to be able to lose that weight again. What this also comes down to, when you look at what happens to fat cells as you increase the number of, and when you increase size um, over time from overeating and overconsumption of these calories, when they fill up to a certain point, the body has no choice but to create more. And when they create more, what the biggest issue that ends up happening is even if you were to go into a calorie deficit to lose that weight, the organelles and the actual physical components of these fat cells get left behind. They only shrink in the amount of triglycerol and the triglycerols molecules that are utilized from these fat cells. Um, but the actual organelles, the components, the bilayers, all, all the structural matter and proteins of these fat cells get left behind. And it makes it that much more difficult to lose that body fat. And those oftentimes have to be physically removed. So, and this is, so just to go you know, reiterate, you know, the dangers of yo-yo dieting and why it is that we need to create better approaches when it comes to fat loss and make more sustainable habits. And this is why I really implore any coaches who are listening out there that we really have to communicate simple, permanent lifestyle changes where we teach people how to develop a healthy relationship with food um, so that things can be more maintained for a longer period of time. But we'll dive into this later on. And I really want to go over some of these fundamental aspects of fat loss uh, and what we can do in addition to uh, engaging in calories in versus calories out, but also how to, how to maintain progress when undergoing a calorie deficit. Um, but then also make sure that we are <clears throat> going through looking at other aspects of how to take advantage of these principles. So let's dive into the first one that I actually find really fascinating. 
Now, before we dive into everything in this episode, I want to make sure that credit is due where it needs to be, and that goes to all the scientists who give all this information through all the research that they do. I like to give credit to not only uh, experts like Andy Goppin and Andrew Huberman, but also individuals in the actual science industry um, who I've done work with in the past, you know, when it comes to things like time-restricted eating, talking about Dr. Sachin Panda, when it comes to uh, looking at different aspects of energy expenditure and excess post oxygen consumption, you know, I, an old uh, mentor of mine um, who was my teacher at ASU, um, Dr. Glenn Gaser. There's so many, so many scientists out there who put out this information every day. I want to make sure that you guys are always respecting that scientists do this for the betterment of others um, and to make sure that they get credit for, for all these all these great things that we know each and every day and what scientists do for us when it comes to understanding more about the human body so that we can put our best foot forward. So let us dive into the science of fat loss. Let's talk about various habits of ours that we need to optimize to ensure that we have fat loss other than then simply just saying calories in versus calories out. And I would be doing a disservice to my own expertise if I didn't highlight one big thing first, and that is sleep. And sleep is absolutely essential when it comes to fat loss. Whether you are a morning person or a night owl, getting enough sleep and optimizing your circadian rhythms is absolutely essential when it comes to fat loss. And here's, here's how this works. When you look at the role of circadian science and the new science that's been coming out about this, you know, in late in past months and few years, is that more and more we're starting to understand that there is an optimal time of day for every process to occur. Whether it's, uh, whether it's an optimal time of day for digestion, an optimal time of day for creative work, an optimal time of day for exercise, we are learning more and more that each cell, each organ, all has its own 24 to 25 hour rhythm where it's more optimal at one time of the day and not as optimal at other times of the day. We see the same thing with gene expressions where gene expressions at some times of day are meant to be high while at other days they're meant to be low. And what we find in circadian rhythm science is when they are enforced to not behave the way that they were designed at the specific times of day that they were designed to be that active, that actually causes issues with our health. And so when it comes to overall sleep, it is essential that sleep is optimized for the improvement of fat loss and the effectiveness of fat loss. And so the biggest thing when it comes to what happens when an individual is sleep deprived. Well, first of all, we need to understand that sleep is independent of circadian rhythms. And so we need to make sure that we know that these are two different things, but they need to be combined together when it comes to optimizing your health. And so first of all, we know that if you're not getting enough light exposure during the day and enough, and you don't have the anchors of getting the morning light in the morning, and even sometimes getting uh, enough contrast of darkness at night that this can cause dysregulation of your circadian rhythms. This can make it more difficult to fall asleep and have high quality sleep. In addition to this, we also know that uh, eating and exercising at the same time every day can also have a fundamental impact on the timing of your circadian rhythm. And so if you're an individual that has digestive related issues, then oftentimes using not only timing of your meals throughout the day to help with your digestion, but also using a time-restricted eating pattern can be very, very beneficial in regulating your circadian rhythm. And so just to get after, well, why is all this bad if I'm dysregulated and I'm not able to have an optimal circadian rhythm? Why does it matter if I'm not getting enough light exposure? Well, I'll put it to you this way. If your circadian rhythm is not regulated, this will not 
only affect your sleep at night, but also affect your ability to metabolize properly. It'll affect your digestion. It'll affect your ability to utilize nutrients. It'll make, it'll, it could cause potential increased levels of inflammation um, and harmful effects on the body. We see increased levels of inflammatory markers in individuals that have dysregulated circadian rhythms on, as an, also a result to sleep deprivation. Uh, and in addition, when it comes to executive functioning and sleep deprivation, this is something that I'm very fascinated with. Um, we also we often see that when an individual is sleep deprived, that they are less more in a stressed out state. Um, they are less likely to make sound decisions when it comes to volition, willpower, um, logistics. Uh, it becomes much more difficult to be able to resist. Uh, oftentimes things that they know are bad for them that they choose to have anyway. And so when you combine this with late at night activity, staying up late, staying up incessantly on your phone, not getting enough sleep, um, becoming more irritable, uh, being less emotionally regulated, this leads you to perhaps be more likely to choose more palatable foods, ones that are more processed. You're more likely to go after the high fat, high salt foods. We see this in various diets when we, when we, and interventions when we sleep deprive individuals and monitor the types of foods that they prefer to choose. And when you combine this, especially with sedentary activity, and we know that the effects of sedentary activity and sitting for too long also carries a negative impact on metabolic health, that this can create a, a cascade of negative health-related issues that will make not only fat loss more difficult, but making you more prone to obesity and chronic disease. Uh, in addition to this, if you're not getting enough sleep, um, or if your circadian rhythms are not optimally aligned, this can also have an effect on cravings um, and make it so that you are actually craving more of these in, uh, types of foods. And so when it comes to making sure that we are controlling these things, optimal mood and, 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 and independently of healthy metabolism is super, super important when it comes to your ability to not only resist these cravings, but to also make sure that you have a chance of developing new habits and actually giving healthy food choices uh, better, uh, a better, um, better choice as well. And just to further substantiate why sleep is so important when it comes to fat loss is what we do also see in sleep deprivation studies directly uh, when it comes to weight loss, that individuals that engage in weight loss practices and are sleep deprived, we actually see more of the weight loss comes from lean muscle, lean mass from the body and less from fat loss, um, which is another major concern for individuals who are working so hard to lose weight when they're in the gym, but are causing so much stress on themselves from sleep deprivation and the negative impact that it has on your body that you actually lose more of the actually high metabolically active tissue that you're working so hard to preserve while you're in a caloric deficit. So definitely important things to consider when it comes to sleep and optimizing your ability for not only restitution and recovery from physical activity that is so important, but also for optimizing fat loss. Um, very, very, very important. Um, and so, and this can also affect what, what a lot of people don't understand about one day of sleep deprivation. This does not affect that day. It affects the numerous days afterwards, the subsequent days that come later. Uh, because it becomes very, very difficult for you to be able to recover from that sleep debt over time. You can't simply sleep in the next day and be recovered. It takes upwards of 24 hours just to shift your body clock in the proper direction to become aligned again. And so and this is where a lot of people oftentimes misconstrue or 
uh, under um, underestimate the impact that sleeping in on a weekend can do to you and your overall health. And because so, and just to illustrate this, this is a this is a theme called social jet lag, um, which is very similar to what you see with travel jet lag when you travel from multiple points of the country or around the world. Um, and when you do this, it shifts your circadian clock out of alignment from where it was previously. And so when you do this, the easiest way to describe this is when you're, you know, living your life during the week and you get up to go to work, you have a routine, you get up around 5, 6 a.m. and then you go to work and then you come home and you go to bed around 9, 10 o'clock every night. And then you do this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But then oftentimes on the weekends, because of our social lives of engaging with friends, going out, um, being with family, we tend to stay up later and sleep in. And when this happens, we are artificially creating jet lag. We are shifting our body clock out of place. And when you do this, just enough for the week, if just two days of doing this on the weekend, sometimes three days um, for people who engage in social activities on Thursdays before the weekend. And then you come back on Monday. Monday ends up feeling incredibly hellish um, due to the fact that you shifted your body clock. You experience social jet lag. And this is oftentimes why people complain about Mondays being the worst days ever, not only because of the Sunday scaries, which I hear all the time. Where I'm like, I don't even know what Sunday scaries was until social media. Um, and oftentimes why Monday feels like complete hell is when you try waking up on your normal schedule for 5 a.m. to go to work, your body clock is still behind around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning because it ended up being shifted from what you did to it over the weekend from sleeping in. And so what happens is, is it takes 24 hours for your body to try and shift back into the direction that you try to align it with. And this can, if, if you think about this, if Monday feels like hell and you just start to shift it back into the direction that evening, then you still feel like crap on Tuesday. It's still shifting back on, on Wednesday. And then around Thursday, it comes back around again and you keep going again and again. And it becomes this vicious circle. And we know now that social jet lag independently of sleep also has negative ramifications on your health. And so further making it more difficult for fat loss to occur. So it's super important to make sure that if you are trying to optimize weight loss, if you're trying to optimize your health and you really want to make sure that you're prioritizing fat loss, that you do your best to go to bed at the same time every night, including the weekends and waking up at the same time every single day. Um, you can get away with one plus or minus one uh, hour here or there. Um, but it becomes very, very important to try and stay as synchronized as you possibly can, the more dedicated you are towards your goals uh, when it comes to fat loss. Let's talk now uh, about oftentimes that what we don't also look at is your mindset when it comes to fat loss. And this is actually incredible things. Uh, we talked about this last year um, on the podcast. Uh, I, I remember reading uh, this study that came out from Aliyah Krum, um, who is a researcher at Stanford. Um, who did a study to where she gave two different groups um, the same milkshake, but then she told them different things. And so the study proved to us that when you tell an individual um, the contents of what's in it, then when they actually believe it, this actually has an impact on how their body metabolizes the food um, and, when, and its release of particular hormones. And so what we see is your mindset is super important. If you go into eating particular foods positively, um, then it actually has a less stressful impact on the way that the body digests the food. Rather, if you go into it, you know, freaking out that, oh my gosh, this is an unhealthy drink and it's gonna, it's gonna cause so much weight gain and everything else is gonna ruin my goals and so on and so forth, which happens 
very frequently when I work with athletes and clients on online training platforms and they, they, and they become just so down and hard on themselves, this actually has a negative impact on your physiology. It makes you more stressed and has a negative impact on how that boot is metabolized. It can potentially negatively impact your fat loss progress, whether from a physiological standpoint or from a mindset standpoint as well, potentially influencing you to overeat from a result of that stress um, as a reaction of self-soothing. So it becomes very, very important that we understand that the belief of fat loss and the belief of particular activities or particular engagements that we do with food is super important to keep in mind. Um, what we also know from very similar research from that same researcher um, was when, when you influence individuals and told them that certain activities are good for their health and how they can make them lose weight, that being simply told that that movement is good for you can also lead to weight loss and positive aspects of their cardiovascular health, which is very, very remarkable and what these types of effects of activities have when it comes to exercise. And so it becomes very, very important for us to not only encourage others to be more physically active, um, but even saying things, keeping things as simple as possible, you know, when it comes to calories in versus calories out, sure. You know, when you try to, you know, science everything up sometimes and say, you know, you got to do this, 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 and this, oftentimes just telling people just walk more. All right. Just try to get some steps in during the day or try to, you know, walk uh, further away in the parking lot when you're going into a store. Try taking the stairs more often than you do the elevators. You know, walk around campus if you work at a university um, or take of frequent breaks in your office building and walk around the office building every 45 minutes to an hour. I try to do this every day at the university just to make sure I'm getting steps in. These little things can influence fat loss and, and weight loss and health in so many ways um, that are independent of simply targeting these things. And just those small improvements in behaviors can be super important. You know, one of the biggest things that I've learned as well, especially when it comes from dietary advice, um, is simply telling people to, you know, you don't have to go 100% all in, being crazy, monitoring food, tracking this, tracking that. Like, yes, when it comes down to it, you do have to make sure you're in a calorie deficit. But sometimes just telling someone to prioritize whole foods or to make the majority of their diet come from whole foods and less from processed foods. Um, I, I, I see the most benefit sometimes with athletes and clients when I simply tell them to stop drinking beverages with calories, stop drinking soda, stop drinking juices, stop drinking these sweet teas that have 300 calories all from sugar. And simply by doing that, oftentimes, if you do the math, that adds up to anywhere from 600 to 800 calories from empty calories from these beverages. And simply doing that after four weeks or so, they've lost weight. <laughs> so it becomes super important just to look at these small things that could be potentially changed to help people lose weight relatively quickly just by making small changes every, every day um, can be super, super important. So now let's talk about uh, losing fat as a two-part process. And what I mean by this is, and this is from reading an excerpt from uh, Dr. Huberman's lab that he talks about um, and, and multiple podcasts of his um, is a two-part process of mobilization and oxidation. Yes, when it comes to utilizing fat, before it can actually be used, we have to mobilize it. We have to make sure that we are doing the things that are actually going to allow us to utilize fat appropriately, whether it's from the particular exercise intensity um, or that we are actually causing the need to mobilize free fatty acids. And so, and to do this, we have to make sure that we understand the differences between 
certain hormones uh, and certain um, certain types of enzymes that are actually utilized to break them down. And so, and certain most important ones are known as uh, HSL, lipase. Um, these are the types of things that are able to metabolize fat and break them down. Um, but you have to be able to mobilize them so you can actually oxidize that fat into energy. And so, and some of the ways that we can do this oftentimes can be from the utilization of certain stimulants, adrenaline and epinephrine, um, because we know specifically that adrenaline does stimulate fat oxidation and can stimulate the rate at which you burn fat in the mitochondria of your cells. Um, and so when you are, you know, and that's why we often see what are the benefits of taking stimulants and caffeine um, than taking these types of supplements and pre-workouts, that this can actually stimulate the, uh, the mobilization of free fatty acids to be utilized. Um, and can stimulate the fat oxidation and potentially utilize more fat. Now, when you get into this now, you'll hear a lot of people will start to say things, well, is this very similar to doing things like fasted cardio and so on and so forth? And unfortunately, what we see in the science is, yes, you burn more fat from being in a fasted state during that moment, but as a result, the body compensates for that after the exercise by slowing down fat loss throughout the rest of the day. Whereas the opposite is true. When you are working out in a fed state, you're not as burning as much fat during the physical activity itself, but you upregulate the amount of fat loss that occurs naturally throughout the subsequent hours after that exercise. Um, this is something that Lane Norton talks about all the time because he, he, I love watching his stuff on social media. He just gets so fired up about people that claim that fasted burning, uh, fasted fat burning is the absolute best end all be all when it comes to doing their fasted cardio for the purpose of weight loss. Um, and so, and what I, what his biggest caveat to that as well, and I absolutely agree with him. You know, the reason why most people believe that is because they have their own self biases where when they are doing these types of activities, and they like them and they believe that it's working, guess what? They're going to put a hell of a lot more effort into doing that specific thing and they're going to do more from that and be more consistent with it. That's what's going to lead to their increased fat loss. You could have said the same thing for an individual who had one to two meals already during the day and then did their cardiovascular training in the afternoon and felt so much better from the having more uh, more substrates and more nutrients in their bloodstream that they'd be able to utilize for that physical activity. They'd be able to push themselves harder. They might feel better and they get a lot more out of that. So, and then they still have the same amount of fat loss. So what what is the rule of thumb with this? It is whatever you prefer doing the most and that you're more likely to be consistent with is going to lead to the most progress when it comes to achieving that energy expenditure from that activity it has nothing to do with being fasted or not being fasted um and so and this is you know i found this funny for so long because i would have certain people counter me on this or i have certain people ask me questions on this all the time is fasted better than this is fasted better than that it just cracks me up <laughs> do what you can be consistent with and because you know i'm an old school strength and conditioning coach and that's by training it's what i've been doing it's you know my it's in my background for the past 16 17 years now uh, I've always found in my personal experience that whenever I am able to give my best, it's always after I've had a good night's rest and I've been fed. 
Um, I, after I've had energy, I've had food in my stomach throughout the day, and then I have energy that's able to put forth towards exercise, I always feel 10 times better, especially when you look at the timing of day. And so when you look at the time at bowl to be more optimal for physical activity, uh, usually it's going to be later on in the day. This is often due to the fact that our natural rhythms of body temperature, um, our body temperature rises slowly throughout the day and reaches its peak in the mid-afternoon. Um, and what we know from body temperature and the reason why warming up is so important is because not only does warming up improve blood flow to muscle tissue, not only does it get you ready for activity um, by increasing your body temperature, it also increases contractility of muscle tissue. It speeds up neural transmission uh, and improves contractility and synchronization of muscle tissue. Um, but it, it's just overall, it's better to exercise when your body's at a higher temperature. Um, it even increases enzymatic reactions of which you metabolize energy and so that you can have more energy readily available for exercise. Um, this, so this is why, you know, for my, my, my people who work out in the mornings, and I am that individual too, I, prefer, I like either. I like to work out in the early morning or later on in the day. Um, for my individuals in the mornings, I always tell them, you, you need to spend more time warming up um, because that is going to be essential to getting your body temperature to a point to where you're going to be able to get the benefits of that increased body temperature. Um, so just to iterate you know the processes that go throughout the day and why it's important to be just consistent with what works for you is what's going to be the most important as long as it's in the guidelines of what's going to be healthy for you um let's move now let's shift to some other gears here as far as what other types of scientific methods other than what we know in the standard scope of things um can be potentially uh impactful for fat loss and one that i find super super interesting is the act of shivering and fidgeting for fat loss. We know that when it's cold, um, the body upregulates itself and its ability to shiver because it needs to keep you warm. This is oftentimes why when you watch shows um, on the Discovery Channel, <laughs> like, and the reason why I know this is because my dad is absolutely obsessed. Every time I go home, he's watching Alaska Great Frontier, Last Frontiers, or he's watching Life Below Zero on Disney+. Plus. He absolutely loves these shows. And then you'll see these individuals that live in Alaska who live in these sub-zero temperatures who consume large amounts of calories, um, especially coming from fat. And the reason why they have to do this because their energy expenditure is so much higher than the average individual because they live in these cold climates. And if they don't have enough of those calories to sustain that increase in body temperature, not only are they not going to get enough calories to sustain their body weights, but just to sustain overall health and their ability to survive in these conditions. Um, and so what we see from fidgeting and fat loss is this actually, this movement stimulates the release of these adrenaline factors, especially epinephrine, um, which is our, our well-known stimulant in the body, which promotes more liberation, movement, and mobilization of fat and can thus oxidize more fat and have more fat readily utilized for energy. Um, and because it becomes really, really important. So shivering can be seen as a strong stimulus for the release of epinephrine to be able to utilize and, mo and mobilize fatty tissue. Um, and so what we can observe from that as well as, you know, just to take away from that, okay, well, if shivering does that too, then very basic movement can do that as well. And so, and this is where a group of, uh, a group of scientists in England actually studied this in fidgeters and how fidgeting actually has a very prominent impact. And what we usually see, especially in the coaching industry, where we're working with individuals, as you take someone's calories up, and so we're talking the opposite direction now, if someone were to go through a reverse diet or if we're just trying to get people to eat more food, because honestly, that is one of the biggest problems I have oftentimes is getting people to simply eat enough food. That is always a big problem. 
uh, that their energy expenditure actually increases because when your body has more energy, it's able to actually upregulate metabolic processes and it starts, you know, increasing total daily energy expenditure. You start moving more. Okay. And so, and what we see from this is, you know, certain research studies have shown that fidgeters, so such as people that consistently bounce their knee when they're sitting at a chair or people that head bob when they're listening, people that nod, people that tap their fingers a lot, or people that just are simply moving, um, people that stand up, sit down, people that you usually see is why doesn't that person sit the hell down and stop moving? Because of the amount of movement that they create throughout the day, subsequently, just these little things that they're doing throughout the day, they can burn anywhere from an extra 800 to 2,500 more calories, more than the average person, uh, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, and so, and these are usually the people that you see that, you know, these are crazy people that overeat and that you're just like, how is it that you're eating all this and you're able to put it away? Um, and you don't gain any weight and they don't seem to put on the weight. And it's because people are moving around a lot. They're moving their limbs quickly. They stand up, they're moving from place to place. Um, and especially for individuals who are highly active as well, it's very, very common. You'll see this happen. Um, and so what we see is that studies show that moving around during the day, pacing, standing up quickly, sitting down, sitting down more often and then sit and stand up more often and bouncing around can actually increase fat loss and weight loss in people who are slightly overweight. And so it becomes a very, very powerful way to increase the amount of calories that you burn. We, we call this type of physical activity NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And so you can classify fidgeting as this type of, ins, of, of this type of activity. And so, but what we see with this is this happens in individuals as you increase their energy expenditure. But on the opposite end, when people start to diet down and put go into a calorie deficit, we see the opposite. People actually slow down. And this is actually a result of metabolic adaptation. As your calories go down and your body starts to sense that you don't have enough calories for what you're doing or for what the body needs, it slows down metabolic processes. And as a result, also potentially slows down your activity. Um, and so this is oftentimes something that we'll have to instruct, you know, try to be active, try to move around more, try to set a schedule, try to get up every 30 to 45 minutes when you're sitting down at work, um, if sitting down at a desk, especially if you work from home. Um, and so because if you want to get this impact of why fidgeting works is because it, it promotes release of epinephrine um, and it can release that into the fat and mobilize that fatty tissue to be utilized for energy. Um, and so it can be really, really, really impactful. Now, how we could potentially apply this to things like shivering to accelerate fat loss. Well, there's something typically that you can do if you are in cold, all right, in order to do this, um, that you would have to utilize things like cold plunges, cold baths, but there are so many other benefits that come from these types of uh, interventions outside of fat loss that I don't want to just come right out and say that cold exposure and getting in cold ice bath is going to stimulate fat loss in any way. I mean, you could sit, you could sit in the fat, you can sit in the tank like that, do that for 30 minutes, get out. And then that's still not going to really have any impact on you if you're just not carrying out the regular activities that you were supposed to um, in order to achieve fat loss. And so I don't want to go ahead and just come out straight and say that. Um, but what we do know for sure um, is that that does have a positive impact on things like dopamine and motivation. And so that's where my fascination with cold exposure comes from. Not only does cold exposure uh, limit and lower inflammation, which has positive impacts on the body, but we've also see because it's a difficult event to incur, even for one to three minutes of being in a cold shower can raise dopamine levels. And this is the important transmitter that's associated with motivation. And if uh, when it comes to building better habits and uh, making sure that we are being more resilient towards um, the deleterious behavior, such as alcohol use, scrolling incessantly on social media, if we're trying to become more focused, we're trying to 
you know, overcome pornography addictions, whatever addictions you might have that you use to self-soothe yourself, you know, doing things like cold exposure can be very beneficial because what we see is that when you utilize cold exposure, even for one to three minutes in a cold shower, that the levels of dopamine release are actually more elevated steadily across the day and can have much more of a potent effect on your ability to be motivated, um, which is really, really important and really, really advantageous when it comes to individuals who are looking to improve their habits and looking to make changes to their lives permanently. Um, and it can be super, super beneficial to understand how important that this could be. Now, let's get into more aspects of exercise when it comes to looking at things such as what kind of exercises can I do? You know, what often things can I do when it comes to fitness related things? Can spot reduction help? And so when it comes to exercising for fat loss specifically, what is best? If we're talking about what type of exercise is specifically focuses on the utilization of fat, and we know from exercise physiology and the understanding of the energy systems, it comes from aerobic metabolism. And so in the, in the presence of oxygen, and so this is usually going to be at lower intensities. The higher intensity activity, the more reliant we are on carbohydrate metabolism because of the need for uh, ATP to be utilized, to be metabolic to be recycled faster for use from our energy systems. Whereas if we're at particular energy systems where we can be more steady state and for lack of a better word, cruise as it were, uh, we can utilize more fat for longer periods of time. Um, and so, and this was actually seen in zone two type of cardio where we're anywhere between uh, about 55 and 60% of your heart rate max. Um, I know, and there's a lot of individuals who talk a lot about zone two cardio preaching how the more accurate ways to utilize lactate measurements, but the average person doesn't just have a lactate measurement uh, tool around to stab their finger and breathe their blood. <laughs> and so the way that I liked it heard most, and I actually heard this from Huberman, when it comes to performing zone two cardio and being able to utilize more fat during this way and to improve your the benefits of zone two cardio far surpassed just fat loss, um, that it's right to the point to where you're doing a slow jog to where you can have a conversation and still exercise um, but anything past that and you start to get more into zone three. And so this is doing a very, very slow jog on a treadmill or outside where you really, really are controlling the pace. Um, and one of the biggest benefits of zone two cardio, and I've spoken about this in our dedicated episode to zone two cardio. If you're more interested, if you're interested in learning more about that, please see that episode. Um, but zone two cardio sees a lot of benefits in mitochondrial biogenesis and its ability um, to increase your ability to add more mitochondria in the cells. Um, to be able to utilize both carbohydrate and fat. And when you're able to do that, that not only increases your utilization of oxygen and increases your VO2 max, that increases the health of your muscular tissue. Um, this decreases your risk of all chronic disease, which is an enormous benefit, but this also increases your metabolic flexibility. And if you have the ability to utilize, and what we see from this is the higher, uh, uh, better in shape you are, specifically from zone two cardio, this not only sets a great aerobic base, but it also allows you to rely on fat for energy longer before ever needing to utilize carbohydrate. And so this increase in metabolic flexibility is absolutely paramount to improving your performance, especially when it comes to higher levels of exercise intensities. Um, and so, and if you can be more reliant on fat for energy in that way, by being more metabolically flexible, not only can it improve your overall health and well-being, but it could also improve your ability to sustain higher levels of exercise intensity, 
burn more calories and ultimately be able to sustain uh, lower body weights and potentially better results when it comes to fitness related protocols. Um, and so it becomes super beneficial that I've started to recommend zone two cardio for many individuals. And when it comes to seeing the benefits from zone two cardio, we, we do need to abide by, you know, guidelines from the CDC. You need to perform at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity per week, or at least 60 minutes of vigorous intensity per week. But what we even see even further, when you listen to certain doctors who specialize in this area of zone two cardio, um, Peter Atia did a great presentation on this. Um, it's, we really have to push it for longer. If we really want to improve our zone two cardio, we got to go upwards of 45 minutes a session and oftentimes doing at least two sessions per week of that amount and that duration of that intensity is enough to maintain, uh, that, that metabolic health. But if we want to improve it, we, we usually to see it upwards of three, four, sometimes even five times a week, um, to see optimal benefits. Um, and so, and this is where we can really get into the power. Now, once someone has reached their goals of fat loss and so on and so forth, that this would be a really, really great way to improve metabolic flexibility and endurance. Um, it's not usually the first thing we want to do when someone is trying to lose weight right at the beginning, because we usually want to do other things to help rebuild their metabolic rate after they've gone through yo-yo dieting and done all these crazy reverse diets and become metabolically adapted. And so now this is going to be a perfect segue into prioritizing strength training. All right. If you, if, and so this is probably going to be the biggest, biggest part uh, of this, uh, the podcast when it comes to, you know, what is effective for fat loss. Um, and it's strength training. Strength training is the number one signal that stimulates the building of muscle mass, um, which is the, one of the most metabolically active tissues. It's what keeps us strong. It is the one thing where muscular health seems to be, if not the biggest issue, one of the most issues when it comes to its relationship to all chronic diseases. Um, we can see that if you are at a high risk of chronic disease, that your muscular health is nowhere where it needs to be. Um, when it comes to life and longevity, so, uh, muscle mass also needs to be making sure that we prioritize this as well. Um, so when it comes to how we structure strength training programming for these particular types of things, I always recommend to people make sure that you are building for strength, <laughs> that you are building for hypertrophy. One of the biggest errors I see people make is thinking, well, I'm going to go tone in order to get the body that I want when it comes to fat loss. But this is actually counterproductive. When you are trying to build muscle mass, when you are trying to really do as much as you can to send the signal to your body to metabolically be more available to not only increase the receptors for androgen receptors in the body, to be more receptive to androgens like testosterone and so on and so forth, so forth. you need to make sure that you're doing the high compound movements, the one that are re requiring a lot of muscle mass and muscle tissue. And so this is where we have to do those heavy compound lifts, getting into the squats, deadlifts, overhead presses, movements that require a lot of muscle mass. Um, and we need to lift heavy upwards of higher intensities between that oftentimes do a phase or two where we're lifting above 85% of our one repetition maximum. And then other phases to where we're focusing on hypertrophy, um, and utilizing progressive overload. We have to make sure that we're sending that signal to build muscle. And that's, what's going to not only improve our metabolic rates, um, but also improve the bodies that we're looking for. You know, that's, what's going to get you to your goals. And I I'm directly targeting women here for sure. Um, because there, and I know there are a lot of women out there who uh, understand, you know, the benefits of lifting heavy. Um, but there is also a, another big part of this group that simply is oftentimes 
intimidated and or afraid thinking that if they lift this heavy that they are going to turn into monsters and turn into big giant muscle bound freaks um, that they're going to be super bulky when that is further from the truth uh, because it is often the complete opposite is when engaging in this type of strength training that actually gets them not only to the points of what they're looking for in their aesthetics um, but also increases that quality and increases it faster than what they thought um, so strength training is it has to be an absolute priority uh, when it comes to uh, someone engaging not only for overall health, but but but, but fat loss for sure. Um, and it's super, super beneficial to making sure that we prioritize that over cardiovascular training at the beginning when it comes to doing certain things. Now, need to be careful with saying that as well, because cardiovascular training is absolutely essential for health and should be done for individuals to help with increasing that energy expenditure. Um, but making sure that it is not something that is overly done right at the beginning because it can, there is some potential that it could benefit this. It could blunt the signal from strength training to build muscle and make it counterproductive when it comes to trying to rebuild someone's metabolism, um, utilizing reverse dieting after someone has yo-yo dieted for so long. So for someone who is recovering from dieting and has been a chronic dieter for so long and they've, they're, they're victimized, they're a victim of metabolic adaptation then oftentimes the best thing to do is to really focus on strength training for a long, long time and slowly increasing calories um, before it's engaging in lots and lots and lots of cardiovascular activity so that they have that chance to rebuild that metabolic rate in the best way possible. Um, and so pushing this a little bit further, because a lot of people I know I'm going to ask me about this as well, is before I get into uh, closing thoughts um, on all these other aspects of, okay, well, so how, how can I really uh, upregulate this? Um, I'm also going to talk about high intensity exercise. And when it comes to high intensity exercise, the biggest thing that I usually hear from people is what about the EPOC and the excess post-oxygen consumption uh, and all of these things. Um, and so EPOC, excess post-oxygen consumption, this is what happens when you create an oxygen debt, when you work out really, 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 really hard. Um, and basically, if you, you're not able to get the amount of oxygen, you need to offset the amount of carbon dioxide that was produced during that activity, and it creates this oxygen debt. And as a result, it, it increases your metabolic rate after exercise is complete. And so you tend to burn a little bit more calories after that exercise is done. And so, you know, companies like Orange Theory Fitness, here we go for all my individuals who are out there who love Orange Theory Fitness, I'm sorry. Um, the, the biggest thing that these companies will do is they take these research studies that show this and they blow them out of proportion and say, you burn so many more calories in a 24 hour period afterwards when you do high intensity interval training. And it's so much more beneficial for fat loss. Now, although they're not lying when it comes to the fact that yes, you burn slightly more calories after exercise, it is nowhere near to the amount that they claim to be. Um, and this is going to depend on not only the intensity and duration of the high intensity activity, but also your genetics. And what we usually see is you might be lucky to burn an extra 25 to 50 calories extra uh, from doing high intensity interval training in one bout. Now take this with, now to put this into perspective too, if you're doing high intensity interval training and this high level of activity two, three times a week, well, over time that could potentially add up. That could add up to anywhere from an extra 150 to 300 extra calories, um, that are coming from fat. And if this is consistent on like on a, on a, on a consistent basis throughout the weeks of your fat loss phase, that adds up over time. And that can be really, really beneficial, but it's nowhere near to the drastic impact that is claimed by many companies. Um, so be very, very careful with that when you are engaging in these activities, because the one big downfall to high intensity interval training 
is that it puts a large, large, large stress on the central nervous system. And so when you're doing things um, that are other hard times like exercise, like work, like really, really heavy weightlifting and these bodybuilding style workouts, and that's more and more stress that you're placing on the body. And so and you need to make sure that you're recovering properly so that you can continue to give your best effort each and every time. Um, that you are doing all these workouts. So be be very careful when it comes to doing HIIT and making sure that you're also doing HIIT properly because this is another misconstruent. Um, many people actually are not doing HIIT when they think they're doing HIIT. <laughs> when you look at the clinical definition of HIIT, your heart rate needs to be over 90% of your heart rate maximum um, for the entire duration of the bout. And when people are doing this on social media, when you see certain circuits and so on and so forth, they're lucky to be getting their heart rate up close to that to where they're just doing really, really hard, moderate intensity physical activity. Um, so keep that in mind as well. And you know, if you really wanna give a shot at real high intensity interval training, you can either do the uh, the 10 by one where you're getting your heart rate up above 90% for one minute, taking a break and then doing it again, or you're doing the, <laughs> the four by the, the four minute bout, which is ridiculous, which you have to have your heart rate above 90% of your heart rate max for four minutes um, for, for that long of a bout. That's really hard to do. And that, wow, it's, it's killer. <laughs> um, so just to uh, start to wrap this up and to get into other potential forms, um, just to give you a little bit of insights into what also might help um, fat loss is they're looking at a glucagon-like peptide one known as GLP-1. And I'm actually fascinated by this. This is a peptide that is found in things like herba mate tea or guayusa tea um, or semaglutide. And what they have found with this is it does, it has a direct impact on satiation, um, but also a potential impact when it comes to fat loss and its ability to uh, upregulate uh, mobilization. And so uh, and they can see that these effects happen both during training and during throughout the day as well. And so herba mate is, you know, depending on your preferences, is I, I really enjoy it. It is a really great tea. Um, it can be really, really great for helping you stay satiated and lowering your calorie caloric intake that way. Um, in addition to um, potentially mobilizing fat, they're actually in the process of taking uh, large physiological amounts of GLP-1 um, and utilizing it for potential fat loss prescriptions that might be created in the future. Um, but if you want to get simple benefits from this, once again, it's not going to blow things out of proportion and it has a high amount of caffeine compared to most uh, types of teas, um, that this can be something that you could utilize. And I, I try I tend to drink herba mate about, if not every day, every other day. Um, and I try to drink it either throughout the day or before training. And that really, really helps as well. Um, so to wrap this up, as far as, you know, what is going to be the best things to help you with fat loss? First and foremost, you have to be in a caloric deficit, but you have to also make sure that you're in a caloric deficit for you. And if you're having trouble figuring out what that might be for you specifically, it is very important to work with a coach to potentially look at if you've had experience with chronic dieting and could be potentially a victim of metabolic adaptation, that it might be important to either prioritize a strong strength and conditioning program in addition to doing a reverse diet to potentially get your metabolic rate upwards back to where it belongs. And be wary that this type of process, depending on how long you've chronic diet, it could potentially take any anywhere from six weeks up to, I've seen as high as six months at times of trying to help someone re recover the metabolic rate. Um, but as long as you're consistent and you're doing the right activities, you can be able to do that. But we have to make sure that we're in a caloric deficit um, at all times to make sure that we are with the goals of fat loss if we want fat loss to occur. Um, the next thing is to make sure that you're getting adequate sleep and that you're having healthy circadian rhythm cycles. And so making sure that you're getting regular light exposure, making sure that you are getting 
uh, that you're limiting that bright light exposure in the evenings um, and making sure that you are really prioritizing pr high quality sleep, not only for your overall health, for every other aspect of your health, but for the improvement of fat loss when it comes to your fat loss goals. Absolutely essential to get a proper amount of sleep so that you have a healthy hormonal profile uh, and are also more likely to make the best decisions and not have sleep deprivation uh, wreak havoc on your ability to engage in proper executive functioning. Um, and in addition to that as well, making sure that we are also utilizing exercise correctly, um, not only improving our metabolic efficiency and metabolic flexibility, utilizing various forms of cardiovascular activity to improve our mitochondrial health, but also that we are utilizing strength training in the absolute best way that we can um, and make sure that we are utilizing progressive overload, strengthening our muscle with the absolute best exercises that we can to send the strongest signal to our body um, to be able to build muscle and improve that metabolic rate. Um, and also to be able to achieve more of the results that we're looking for uh, when it comes to fat loss. And above all else, I'll end with this. When it comes to fat loss, you got to be consistent. We have to change our habits. We have to change the little things. We have to make sure that we are making permanent lifestyle changes. You cannot commit to a trendy diet thinking that we're going to do this for a short period of time to lose the weight and then go right back to how you were. Because if you go right back to the habits um, that you can, that you're that were contributing to your unhealthy habits and the unhealthy weight in the first place, you're going to go right back to where you were. You have to be cognizant of yourself and be willing to make a lifestyle change forever. This is a one and done living a healthy lifestyle for the rest of your life. If you want to be able to commit to having a healthy body weight, committing to having a, a body that works for you and that what you want to live with and makes you comfortable in your own skin and that you're healthy um, then it's super important to understand that this is to make a permanent lifestyle change and to have a healthy relationship with food and physical activity in order to achieve your goals when it comes to fitness and fat loss. Y'all, this has been Chris Perry, and I have had a great time taking you through this episode today, and I hope that you got a lot of value. As always, be sure to follow all of our Instagram and Facebook accounts for everything that we do at Evolve to support our athletes and to support everyone out there who is looking to evolve and become the next best level athlete that they've ever been. This has been Coach P, and we'll see you in the next episode. Listen to the outro to get more information on how to find out about us. I'll see you in the next one. Coach P's out. Work with us and becoming the best version of yourself. Be sure to check our coaching application down in the bio to get more information about how to get the best in fitness and nutrition coaching from the Evolve coaches. Be sure to check out all of our information and great content we put out every single day on our Instagram and our Facebook group. Be sure to check us out on EvolvedHealthAndPerformance.com for more information and keep tuning in to the Evolved Athlete Podcast for the best in everything fitness, nutrition, and becoming the best version of yourself. We'll see you in the next one. Evolve team out. Okay. Uh, that's